I came across a story and I can share with you this morning. Funny story of three building contractors who were on a tour of Malacanian Palace. One of the building contractors was from Hong Kong, the other from Singapore, and the third was local from the Philippines. As they walked through the palace, they noticed the broken wall and asked if it would be possible to submit a bid, a contracting bid, to fix that wall. They were told, of course. All three building contractors go with a palace official to examine the wall. The Hong Kong contractor takes out a tape measure, does some measuring, works out some figures with a pencil, and he says, well, I figure the job will run about 10,000 pesos, 5,000 for material, 4,000 for my work crew, and about 1,000 peso profit for me. The Singaporean contractor does the same, measures, does some calculations, and then says, I can do this job for 7,000 pesos, 4,000 for materials, 2,000 for my crew, and about 1,000 pesos profit for me. The Filipino contractor doesn't do any measuring or calculating, but leans over to the Malacanian official and whispers, 57,000. The official, incredulous, says, you didn't even take any measurements like the other contractors. How did you come up with such a high figure? 57,000 pesos. The contractor whispered back, 25,000 for me, 25,000 for you, and then we hire the guy from Singapore to fix the wall for 7,000. In light of the things that are occurring in our government, we feel that a lot of accounting must be done, a lot of repenting by many of our officials, but the reality is most probably won't be doing it. And it's been interesting to read the op-eds as well as uh, the articles of all of the excuses they've been giving this week. I was strict. That wasn't my signature. It was forged. I don't remember getting the money. I don't remember being with this person. I don't know where the money went. I just signed the approval. I'm not responsible for how it's used. We hear it, we roll our eyes, and we wonder how, with a conscience that they supposedly have, how they could continue to do what they do. The reality is it all goes back down to a heart attitude. It goes to the heart. And although very difficult, we'll see very few officials publicly confessing and repenting for what they will be doing or what they have done. But as we look in the life of David, we come to the characteristic of a heart of repentance. You see, a heart for God, as we've been talking about the different qualities of what a heart for God looks like, a heart of repentance is essential because no one lives a perfect life. And to have and cultivate a heart for God, one needs to cultivate at its base a heart of repentance. Up to now in our study of the life of David, you may have the impression that David is an outstanding, outstanding man, perhaps even perfect, or at least one who didn't really do anything majorly wrong to mess up his life, to be known as one after God's own heart. But as we continue our study this morning, the incident we're going to be talking about, if you did not grow up with a Sunday school impression of David, this incident will really make you despise him. 
In fact, one biblical commentator says of this incident, what David does is perhaps the second most notorious sin after the fall of man by Adam in the Bible. For me, it's the third most notorious after the fall and perhaps the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. But for sure, this incident is in the top five. Some of you know what he did, but for those of you who don't, we all want to take a fresh look at what David did. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. As we look into how to cultivate a heart of repentance. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. We begin this passage in verse 2. If you have your Bibles, look with me at 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sat and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? One evening, David could not sleep. And so he takes the opportunity to go get some fresh air to walk outside the courtyard of his palace. If you've been to the southern part of Mount Zion, which was the place of the city of David, from his palace, he would look down upon the courtyards and the backyards of the surrounding home, his palace being at the highest point. There's nothing wrong with him taking a leisurely stroll in the middle of the night in his palace grounds. But then he sees a very beautiful woman bathing. There is a lingering stare, and the lust in his heart begins to grow. And he asks someone to find out more about this woman. I've often wondered as I've read this passage before, what in the world was Bathsheba doing taking a bath in the middle of the night? Did she have some fault in this matter? Was she there to purposely be seen? Was she there to be noticed? Could she not have been a bit more discreet? Did she have any fault implicit in what was about to happen? Perhaps. Regardless, the Bible is silent on the role of Bathsheba. And lies the fault solely with David. Whether he saw her by accident or not, he allowed his eyes to linger, his lust to grow, and he wanted to know more about who she was. When he is told that this is someone else's wife, and more specifically, the wife of one of his mighty men, there are 37 of them, the book of 2 Samuel 23 tells us, Uriah is one of these mighty men of David, one of his most loyal and trusted commanders. This is his wife. That should have been an end of that. She is a married woman. David should have just gone back to bed. But David's temptation followed an age-old pattern of sin. I see, I desire, I want, and so I'm going to get it. David saw, he desired, and he took age-old pattern of falling into sin. There are so many moments that evening where David could have stopped sinning. But he chose not to. 
this falls rightly on him. He allows himself to succumb to his fleshly desires. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. For David, it was a one-night stand. Sleeps with her, a moment of fleshly desire to satisfy himself. And for him, that was the end of that. No one would ever know. But sin has an ugly multiplying effect. And now things get a lot more complicated. Bathsheba sends word that she is with child, she is pregnant. And in about six and a half, seven months, things are going to be pretty obvious that something has happened, especially when Uriah is on the front lines fighting the Ammonites. David better deal with this quickly. Perhaps like any of us who would be caught in this very similar situation, the most natural thing for David to do would be to cover up the situation, which makes this matter worse. We don't have time, so I encourage you to read this when you get home or this week. But in verses 6 to verse 13, David recalls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the front lines of battle to try to cover up for his very soon-to-be public sin. You can read more about what he tries to do. But suffice it to say, Uriah shows himself to be more godly and an honorable man than David. And David, frustrated, is unable to cover up for what he has done. Frustrated by his failures, that his plan didn't work out, David orders Uriah to to carry his own death sentence to his commander, Joab, in verse 14 and verse 15. This is very much premeditated murder on the part of David. Job would place Uriah in the front lines of the most intensive fighting in the walls of Ammon and then call for a retreat, not telling Uriah, of course, and leaving Uriah exposed and allowing him to die. And that's exactly what happens in verse 16 and verse 17. And you will note in verse 17 that not only does Uriah die, but there are several soldiers that die with him. There is blood on the hands of David. Verse 26 and verse 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning period was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord What started as a seemingly innocent evening walk led to the murder and death of innocent men. And with that, exposing David as one who has committed the sin of coveting, as well as adultery, lying, murder, and a whole host of other sins. How does a man after God's own heart do all of these things? My friends, never be surprised at the darkness of the human heart. You simply have to examine your own heart. And it would be obvious to you that the heart of men and women is sinful and it is dark. 
That's what Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to verse 23. The moment in your pride and in your confidence you say, this will never happen to me. This could not ever happen to me. You better be very careful. The evil one is lurking, working overtime to make you fall. Perhaps David, at the height of his kingship, having just received a covenant from the Lord, as we talked about last week, thought he could do no wrong. His guard came down. And look what happened. For the first time in the scripture, in the life of David, we are told that David has displeased the Lord. I'm not sure if displeased is a forceful enough word. God is angry. God is very unhappy with David. God does not stop loving David. But God is very upset. And when God is displeased, He will punish. Even to people who are called a man after my own heart. And that's what we see in chapter 12 of the book of 2 Samuel. Jump with me to chapter 12. Evidently, between chapter 11 and chapter 12, a year has elapsed. The baby is born. Now, I don't want you to think that somehow David has forgotten what he has done. That David simply went back to a normal life. The Uriah problem has been taken care of. The city of Oman has been captured at the end of chapter 11, and life is just fine. But perhaps as David goes, tries to go back to a normal life, he remembers about his deception and his murder. Unless you think all is well with him, it is not. In Psalm 51, the psalm which he writes in the midst of this incident, it is evident that there is no joy in his life. The birth of a son should mark Great joy in a household, but there is none. David is insecure. He is anxious. He is unhappy. He is discontent. He is unsettled. He is torn up inside. All is not right. This is the effects and the ugliness of sin. He's struggling. I got away with it. Do I need to confess? And that struggle will tear a person apart inside. In verse 1 to 8 of chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about this unresolved sin. And again, we don't have time to fully exposit it. Would you go back and read it this week? Nathan tells David a story between a rich man who takes advantage of a very poor man. When David hears the story of this great injustice, in the righteousness of his anger, David says, This rich man who took advantage of this very helpless poor man should die. And should repay this family back fourfold. And this is where we pick up in verse 7. One of the most dramatic verses in all the Bible. Then the prophet Nathan said to David, You are the man. David, it's you. It's you who I'm talking about. It is you who have done this great injustice. In fact, in verse 7 to verse 9, God reminds David to the prophet Nathan... All that David has received by his grace. 
And if it wasn't enough to satisfy him, God would have given more. God said, David, if you were not satisfied with all the things that you have, I would have given you more. But you have taken what does not belong to you. You have taken what is not yours. In verse 10 to verse 12, the consequences of his sin. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. David's punishment would be harsh. It would come from his own family, this discipline of God. There would be family strife. Look at the next chapter. Rebellion would come from his own sons who would try to usurp him. And David, as we're going to talk about in the latter part of the series, would help to flee his own kingdom. His wives will be taken from him as he took the wife of Uriah. Interestingly, David had said that the rich man needed to pay the four poor man four times the payment. Fourfold repayment. And interestingly enough, ironically, four sons were taken from David. In verse 14, the child, the very child he had with Bathsheba in sin would die. The tragic consequence of the child because of the actions of the parents. God is not to blame for this tragedy. David and Bathsheba are to blame. And in contrast to what David thought was a secret sin, all of what will happen to him will be done in the public eye. A public humiliation for a public figure. Don't ever think that your sin will be in secret. It will be made public in this lifetime or in the next. All will know. Public punishment and personal consequences. The Lord does not let even the righteous get away with sin. Understand that, my friends. Do not think that because you are a child of God, that you will not suffer the consequences of the sin of your life. Those that He loves unconditionally will not get away with sin. David very much deserves all of the discipline and the consequences. Even though God would forgive him, sin always has consequences. An illustration of this is someone has said that after you hammer a nail into the board, hammer a nail into a wood board, you can remove the nail, but the hole still remains. Now you may be asking, premeditated murder, adultery, in the Old Testament, that's grounds for capital punishment. Why didn't God kill him? The answer is in verse 13. And later expanded in Psalm 51, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
God in His grace and His mercy spares the life of David because of David's heart attitude. It is one of genuine and contrite repentance in contrast to the king before him. Unlike Saul who tries to explain away his sin to try to cover it up, David confesses and calls out his sin for what it is. Now you may look at verse 13 and you say, six words, that's it? I have sinned against you, Lord. God says, okay, David, you won't die. But that's a snapshot of what David prays and is in his heart. We get the full picture in Psalm chapter 51. Would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 51? And from this Psalm of David, we're going to draw out three principles for how to cultivate a heart of repentance. Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51. Look at the subscript. Psalm 51. To the chief musician, David wanted this psalm to be put into song. This was not a happy song. This was a song to commemorate his repentant heart, to allow him to remember his heart's attitude. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had slept or gone in to Bathsheba. Let's begin in verse 3. David says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Finally, finally David, having the sin on his mind for many, many months, he finally owns up to it. Perhaps he had been rationalizing these many months. Oh, you know, God, you shouldn't have made Bathsheba so beautiful. I wouldn't have fallen for her. If only she wasn't taking a bath that night. If only she was a bit more discreet. Maybe it's her fault. Then he comes to this realization. It's no one's fault. It's my own. He owns up to it. Neil Anderson says, Confession is not saying I'm sorry. It's openly admitting I did it. There is a difference. There's a difference between saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry is cheap. But when you say, I, I did it, it was me, it's my fault. Then you begin to understand repentance. Taking personal responsibility for our sins is an important part of true confession. We do not begin the process of repentance. If you don't think you've done anything wrong, if you're made to say sorry, if the only reason you say sorry is because someone made you or you feel obligated to do it, or you do it just simply to keep the peace, as we've all done, we don't really mean it. We have to take personal responsibility. Own up to it. I did it. David says, I acknowledge my transgressions. I admit it. Verse 4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David comes to an understanding that his sin is against God primarily, a God who is holy, a God who is righteous. Did he sin against Uriah? Absolutely. Did he sin against the other men and the countless who died because of this? 
Yes, he did. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. But the primary sin he realizes is that he broke the standards of holiness that God had set. He broke the rules, the standard, the boundary that God had set based on his holiness. This is important to note in repentance because we can justify all of our sins away if it is toward another person. We, we do it well. Well, the reason I did this because that person wasn't very nice to me. The reason I did this because that person started it. Well, that person did this and that and I just reacted. We're all so good at doing that. But when we recognize that the sin is against holy God and that His standards are holy and true, then that is when we understand we must confess, we must repent. Oh, we justified it. Well, everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it. Recognize that that sin is committed primarily against God. Against you, verse 4, David says, you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. That is why I must come. Sincerity is, is a funny thing. Uh, we fake sincerity like we fake humility. And we can be so sincere of heart. Say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. Oh, but in our heart, we're not very sincere. I'm reminded of a story of sincerity. Walking through a supermarket, there was a young man who noticed that an old woman was following him around. Everywhere he went, everywhere he went, this old woman was following this young man around. He ignored her for a while. But then when he got to the checkout line, she raced to the counter and she got in front of him. Pardon me, she said to the young man. You may have noticed that I had been following you. I'm so sorry I've been staring, but you look just like my son who died recently. The young man replied, I'm so sorry for your loss, ma'am. Is there anything I can do for you? The old woman tells the young man, well, as I'm leaving, could you yell out, goodbye, mother? It would make me feel so much better. You look just like my son. She gave him a sweet smile. The young man promised, of course I can. It's the least I can do, of course. As she gathered her bags after the checkout counter and left, the young man called out to this old woman, Goodbye, mother, just as she has requested, feeling good by the sincerity of her smile. Stepping up to the checkout counter, he saw that his total was about $100 higher than it should have been and told the clerk, this amount is wrong. I only have these items. The clerk said, oh, young man, your mother said you would be paying for her. We may be so sincere, and we can fake sincerity. And especially when it relates to others, we fake it really well. And we say that confessing your sins doesn't count unless you really mean it. But repentance doesn't begin until you own up to it. It's not only because you were caught and you were found out that you say, I'm sorry. It begins when you recognize that you have sinned against the holy God. It's not against other people. 
It's primarily against God. And herein lies our first principle. It's a little bit longer. Maybe you're taking notes. Here's number one. A heart of repentance confesses personal sins committed against the holy God being truly sorry for what you have done. A heart of repentance confesses personal sins committed against the holy God being truly sorry for what you've done. And all the elements are there. You confess personal sins. You own up to it. You've sinned. It's a sin against the holy God, a God whose, whose standards cannot be justified. And then being sincere, being truly sorry for what you've done. That's how you begin to cultivate a heart of repentance. David goes on in verse 7 to verse 9. Look with me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Here in verses 7 and 9, David asks for forgiveness. Clean me with hyssop, he asks of God. What is hyssop? Hyssop uh, in the Old Testament refers to the ceremony of sprinkling blood on the altar to represent the removal of sin through the shedding of blood. Likewise, after the cross of Christ, we have forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Understand that we have no right, we have no standing to simply ask God for forgiveness. We are guilty, deserving of the full consequence of our sin, which is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now I want you to think about this. Every time you sin, whether it's a little lie or a big lie, you steal a little or steal big, it immediately warrants for you death. That's how God looks upon sin. A holy God does not rank sin. Sin is sin. And so do not go around with the conception, well, I didn't sin as bad as the other guy. Every little sin warrants for us death. And, and who are we to approach a holy God? Uh, God, um, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, don't worry about that. Would you forgive me? Of course not. He can't. It's in... His holiness, he can't do it. A price must be paid. Just like if you, if you owe someone five million pesos, do you have a right to go to that person? Um, would, you, would you forgive me and, uh, and, and, and do I have to pay you back? We'd be so ashamed. The guy says, you pay me back first and then you ask for forgiveness. I want you to understand something. When we come before God and we ask Him for forgiveness, we have no standing to even ask Him to go to heaven or to get away from the sin we've done. But when we come before God, we say, God, forgive me. And He says, why? Because your son, God, has died in my place. He took the death penalty. And God says, okay. That's, that's how it works. Every sin, we 
bring out Jesus Christ and we say, God, because of Him, because of Him, you can forgive me. We don't think about it like that. We flippantly say, God, forgive me. As if it's a done deal. Something so simple. God, you're a merciful God. Just, it's not as bad as what someone else does. Just, just deal with it. No. You have to bring along one who is willing and has died in your place and present him before Almighty God and say, God, here, this one has died in my place. That makes you understand the depth of forgiveness. The desire to be forgiven, to be made as white as snow. So David says, purge me, I shall be clean, wash me. Did David think that God's going to forgive him of premeditated murder and of adultery and of manipulation and of, uh, of lying and of stealing? No. The basis for what God will do is because someone has died in the place of David. You know, for David, the desire to be forgiven was so strong. He says, God, my relationship with you has been separated because of this sin with Bathsheba. My struggle to confess this sin has caused a strain in our relationship. That's what he says in verse 8. It hurts just as much as a broken bone. I can't take it anymore. I wonder how many of you have that attitude. God, this sin is, is tearing us apart because a holy God cannot look down upon sin. And we hurt, we hurt so much because we so desire to be with God. You see, there are two types of forgiveness. This was something we call judicial forgiveness. And that happens when we accept Christ as our personal Savior. That makes us acceptable to God. But there is familial forgiveness. And that forgiveness makes us intimate with God. Judicial forgiveness removes the guilt of sin. Familial forgiveness restores the broken fellowship caused by sin. My friends, there's a reason why we don't want forgiveness or we don't think much about that. It's because we desire not to be in fellowship with God. And if there is no desire to be in fellowship with God, there will be no desire to ask for forgiveness. Many a spouse, as I mentioned before, fight like little children. And spouses won't talk to one another until the one who is wronged says, I'm sorry first. And if both spouses feel that they have both been wronged and they're both in the right, then sometimes these spouses go days on end without talking to each other, waiting for the first person to say, I'm sorry. But we eventually do it, hopefully, because of two people who do love each other and desperately want to be reconciled. But how can you come to that person until you tell to them, I'm sorry, and that's exactly the basis of forgiveness. David says, Lord, I so desire to be in relationship with you that I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I have done wrong. So that I can find the joy. There, there was no joy. Look what it says here. Make me hear joy and gladness. He, he, was, he was struggling. That's how close he was to God. He could not bear the thought any longer of being apart from God. And herein lies our second principle, number two. A heart of repentance asks for forgiveness through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first part. 
a heart of repentance, ask for forgiveness through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ in order to renew fellowship with God. A heart of repentance, ask for forgiveness through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ in order to renew fellowship with God. You know, for a lot of us, we just simply say, God, forgive us because we just want to move on with life. We want to make sure that our slates are clean. That's all. But I hope it is the goal. I hope it is the purpose of yours that when you ask God for forgiveness, it's so that you can renew fellowship with Him, so that you can talk with Him. There's a reason why there's so many of us who cannot hear the voice of Christ. There are so many of us who cannot feel the presence of Christ. We're not close to God. Why? Because we are living in sin. We have not asked for forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our purpose is not to restore fellowship with Him. It's simply to make us feel better. But that's not the end purpose of repentance. It's to come and be with one who loves us so much. The third principle found in verse 10 to verse 12. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. These words have been put to song. We sing it. But the context of David writing these words is that he had just sinned radically against God. God created me a clean heart. What was David looking for? He was looking for a heart that was an eternal or inward renewal. David said, change me. God, I don't want this ugliness anymore. I want an inward cleansing, a detoxification of my heart, because I'm so scared that the Holy Spirit would leave me. Now, you've got to understand, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and it went. Unlike the New Testament, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit always remains with us. But he saw what happened to Saul. Remember, when the Spirit of God left Saul, Saul's life went downward. David had done, in my opinion, something worse than what Saul did. And he was so scared the Spirit would be taken away that he would be removed from the privilege of serving God. A year of struggle, a year of justifying in his heart, a year of hardening his heart. And he comes with the realization that I need a deep renovation in my heart. From the inside out, it's got to start from there. This is a man who had a heart for God. And he says, I need an inner cleansing. I want to experience, David says, the joy of my salvation David was not happy. I want the joy of, of that moment I first met you, God. Perhaps as a shepherd in Bethlehem. And, 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 and that closeness we had, God. Why is my life turned so ugly? I'm now king of Israel. I've just killed someone and others because of my lust of the flesh. 
I want that, 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 that simple life, that simple relationship, that simple faith I had with you. I'm so tired of living in sin. I want a renewal of life. I want to experience the joy that I once had. The feeling of security that I have nothing to hide. And that's my standing before God is good. I want to sin no more. David was asking God for a life change, an inner spiritual cleansing. And here is our last principle, number three. A heart of repentance desires inner spiritual cleansing because of sin's ugly effects in order to experience true joy and peace in life. Let me repeat that. A heart of repentance desires inner spiritual cleansing because of sin's ugly effects in order to experience true joy and peace in life. Simply saying I'm sorry is not the depth of repentance. If you're in a car and your wife tells you to turn left but you turn right, and you realize you're going in the wrong direction, and you say, I- I'm sorry, wife, I should have listened to you. But if you continue to go down in that direction, you're getting further and further away from where you need to be. To correct the problem, you need to turn that car around, and you need to head the other way. So it is in repentance, or repentant life. It's not simply saying, I'm sorry, it's changing. Metanoia, a change of mind, a change of heart. It's a change. David is not saying, Lord, forgive me so that I can go sleep around with other women and you'll forgive me again. David says, no, Lord, I've made a mistake. Create in me a clean heart. I don't want to sin anymore. I need a, a deep spiritual detox because I don't like the ugly effects of sin. I don't have joy. I don't have peace. That one night is not worth all of this trouble. I want the lightness and, and the joy. Do you, do you even remember the joy you had when you first met Jesus? Do you remember that? How you were so convicted of heart as to your sinful life. You said, Lord, I need you. Oh, the joy, the beauty of simple faith. And, and then somehow as we grew up, things got a lot more complicated. And we forgot that joy and that peace, that simple faith. A heart of repentance is, 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 is for us. It's good for us. When I think about this terrible incident, I'm reminded that God is a gracious God. That He can take the worst of offenders like David and like myself and like all of us. And when we come with a broken and contrite spirit, we come to God and when we confess to the shed blood of Jesus Christ, He restores a fellowship with us. He associates with us. Can you imagine that? He wants to be with us. He allows us to serve Him. He brings back to us joy. I don't want you to wait until you're caught or found out. If you're tired of living in sin, I'd like you to examine your heart this moment. Maybe there's no joy because you are living in sin. 
you may have justified the guilt away, but it's still there. No wonder you cannot grow spiritually. You're tired of lying, you're tired of stealing, you're tired of cheating, you're tired of adultery and pornography, a whole host of other sins. And you say, Lord, I, I want to come before you, and I want to confess. I think it's appropriate this moment, if you would just bow your heads with me. I'll just give you about 30 seconds to examine your life. And if you don't want to be weighed down by the burdens of sin anymore, you're tired of running, you're tired of hiding, you're tired of, tired of manipulating the system, you have sinned against the holy God. There's, you don't need to justify anything. The shed of blood of Jesus Christ, you want to be made as white as snow. Your prayer has created me a clean heart, O oh God. Would you tell the Lord that in this moment? And then I'll close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us the privilege and the honor of bringing with us Jesus Christ to present before you and asking you for forgiveness. Thank you that you hear our prayers and you make us as white as snow. But I pray for the deep hearts of each person this morning, including my own, that it is a heart that desires to be cleansed from the inside out. Not only so that we won't feel guilty about a sin and then to continue to sin, but cultivate in us a heart of repentance. That when we say, Lord, we are so tired of this, that we are so completely transformed by the Spirit, we don't continue in it. It's hard, Lord, I know. But would you help? And all the prayers that have been said in the hearts this morning, would you accept it through your Son? We desire to be in fellowship with you. Restore in us the relationship and let us experience that joy that we first had with you. The gladness, the simplicity of just walking with our Lord. And that mark our lives in a very complicated world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.